Today is the first uh, quarter observance day. It seems like it should be the second quarter. It's half moon, but they call it the first quarter. But um, since it's an observance day, I thought we would begin this evening with chanting the refuges and precepts together. And uh, if you don't have a sheet and don't know it, don't worry. You can be carried along by the, those who do. And that's good. Just hearing it is good. And good to uh, reflect on, on really what we're saying when we do this chanting. I think to really reflect on the power of our attention to our conduct and the really the way that this uh, informs our practice, forms the foundation for our practice, is woven into the fabric of our practice in so many ways. It's really uh, a beautiful, powerful, um, wholesome part of our life. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddhang saranaṅga chāmi Dhammang saranaṅga chāmi Sanghang saranaṅga chāmi Dutiyampi buddhang saranaṅga chāmi Dutiyampi dhammang saranaṅga chāmi Dutiyampi sanghang saranaṅga chāmi Tatiyampi buddhang saranaṅga chāmi Tatiyampi dhammang saranaṅga chāmi Tatiyampi sanghang saranaṅga chāmi Anati pata veramani sikapadang samadhyami Adina dhana veramani sikapadang samadhyami Abrahmacharya veramani sikapadang samadhyami Musavada Veramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Sura Mereya Majapamadatana Veramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Vikala Bhojana Veramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Nacha Gita Vadita Visukadasana Malaganda Vilepana Dharana Mandana Vibhusanathana 
Ve Ramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Ucha Sayana Mahasayana Ve Ramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Idam Me Silam Magapalanyanasa Pachayo Hotu Sadhu Sadhu The fact that we are able to come, spend time on retreat like this, have this opportunity, have all the factors uh, and conditions come together to be able to do this really reflects, um, it reflects the the fruit of some very wholesome, skillful actions. I don't know, sometimes when things are not going so well, we might think it reflects some past misdeed that uh, got us here. (laughs) But actually, um, it's really, really the fruit of some very wholesome kamma, we could say. And I think it's, it can be uh, really useful to reflect on the fact that this is true. Sometimes I think, maybe I was around at the time of the Buddha, not me, but you know, I had enough kamma to, to get there, but I was rolling dice and drinking beer with my buddies on the side. And it was good enough to get there, but not good enough to actually listen. Um, Something like that. (laughs) I might reflect on that. But these teachings, this reflection, this understanding, the teachings of kamma, karma, really run throughout uh, what the Buddha taught. And and it's an understanding that's really central to uh, what he was teaching, but there's often a lot of confusion and misunderstanding about it. I think maybe some of the confusion is related to the fact that the word karma has become so much a part of the uh, common vernacular over the last decades. The word is used a lot, just commonly, kind of casually. We may use it ourselves or hear others using this word. And, and there's some connection to what, what it's pointing to, or the meaning in that, perhaps. But I think it also tends to reinforce a rather superficial um, and often confused understanding of what this word karma, kamma in Pali really means. You know, and there are are catchy phrases, instant karma's gonna get you, or uh, different references to good and bad karma. And, you know, the bumper sticker I saw said, my karma just ran over your dogma. (laughs) These things are out there. Sometimes karma is referred to, or the concept, the ideas were referred to without using that word, things like as ye sow, so shall ye reap, or what goes around comes around. 
And there's some connection to this understanding in these, but I think it often stays on the surface of things, uh, maybe reflects an oversimplification of what, uh, what the teaching is really about. And the, the understanding of karma also relates very directly to, uh, is tied up with the subject of rebirth, which uh, often leads to a lot of questions and confusion in our minds. And, and there's a way that these teachings are inseparable. And Joseph's uh, addressed the subject of rebirth in his question and answer period uh, last week. But uh, I'm going to touch on that again tonight in this talk because it is so uh, related to the understanding of uh, the way karma functions, karma. But, you know, these questions that come up and came up in, in, uh, in Joseph's question-answer period of, you know, who or what is reborn? Do I have to believe in this? It doesn't make sense to me. I can't relate to it. Um, if there's no self, what's reborn? Who's reborn? Or who, who's experiencing the fruits of past actions? Or are difficulties, suffering that I encounter in my life or someone else encounters, is this somehow the result of some, something I did in the past? Is it my fault somehow? Sometimes there can be this almost blaming quality associated with this word, as though, as though karma is, functions like fate somehow. This, this energy, this force emerging out of the past, which we're somehow we're responsible for it, but we're powerless to do anything about it. Um, so these misunderstandings can lead to um, a kind of a fatalistic sort of attitude, a, a kind of resignation, and, and we hear people say, or we may say ourselves, well, it's just my karma, as though somehow um, there's some fate involved here, or there's some kind of uh, closed system here. It's just uh, a kind of resigned attitude that comes from that. And when, if we hold it in this way, it's a short step to saying people just get what they deserve. We get what we deserve. And, and, um, that someone doesn't deserve our compassion or care because they're just getting their just desserts for something they may have done in the past. So we have to be really careful that we don't somehow use this reflection, this teaching, as an excuse for indifference or not caring. Last night, Spring spoke so beautifully about um, the uh, quality of equanimity and the reflection on the uh, truth of karma, the law of karma, of karma is is the uh, classical reflection that's used for cultivating equanimity. This reflection that beings have their own path, their own life to live. That we all have our own life to live. But we have to be careful that somehow we don't use this reflection to um, incline towards the near enemies of indifference, not caring, of a kind of coldness. Because um, true equanimity, as Spring was saying, is infused with um, connection. And it's the basis for uh, compassion, empathetic joy, uh, and loving kindness, friendliness. They rest on this. It's what balances them and keeps them from falling into their near or far enemies, keeps them from falling into extremes. Someone, and I think it was Joseph in a talk, once referred to 
the teachings on karma as the science of happiness, which I think is really a beautiful way to hold this teaching and really an apt way. Because if we really understand the workings of karma, we really understand what's happening in here, then we'll see it really is a recipe for happiness. Happiness in our lives, human happiness, what we might call a kind of celestial or heavenly happiness and happiness of liberation, of freedom, ultimately. But I think in order to begin to start to explore this teaching and and this understanding, we need to look at what we mean when we talk about the causal nature of things or the conditioned nature. We always talk about the conditioned realm and and, uh, these things, things being conditioned, being the result of causes, cause and effect, to really look at what we mean by this, what this points to. What do we mean when we say the moment is the results of causes and conditions that come together and lead to things being the way they are? So in a fundamental way, this points to the fact that each moment has an impact on subsequent moments, a conditioning effect. And there's a key understanding in this that this is a lawful unfolding, that it's not just a series of random unrelated events, that there are natural laws that govern the way this works, the way this unfolds. So we can see it as a reflection of what we might call the law of nature. It's, It's a natural law. It's just the way nature is. And often the image of a seed is used as a, as a way of illustrating how uh, this functions. In a very simple way, if we plant a certain kind of seed, we will get a certain kind of plant. So if we plant an acorn, there's so many acorns this year, I've been walking in the woods, it was a bumper crop it seems, they're everywhere under the oaks. And if we plant one of those, we're gonna get an oak tree, we're not gonna get a birch or a maple. If we put hollyhock seeds in the ground, we'll get hollyhocks, not daisies. And this is just natural. There's no profound understanding needed to see this, how this works. But the kama, the teachings on kama, point to the understanding that this same kind of lawfulness applies to the way that our actions, actions that we take, also bear fruit, yield results. And we can see this in terms of within one life, and we could look at it over multiple lifetimes, from one life to the next. The idea of of rebirth may, as I was saying, it may not be meaningful at all to us. And um, for some people, it just brings up a lot of resistance, the very idea. There's no connection to it whatsoever. Luckily, we don't have to believe in it or have any real relationship to that at all. We can see each moment as a birth and a death and a new birth and a new death. We're born into each moment. We can hold it in that way. That's just as useful, just as valid, just as real. We can see how it unfolds in this. I'd like to use this illustration. If we think about using one candle to light another candle, Maybe, I don't know where I got this, maybe this is an image that's out there somewhere that I heard somewhere. But if we, if we think of taking a candle and lighting another candle, 
there's um, an effect, something happens there, but there's not a thing that's past. There's no thing there. So we could, we could see um, each mind moment like this, like a candle flame being passed. So we don't take the flame off of one and put it onto the other. It's not put on there. But there's an effect, there's a conditioning effect. When we move that flame over, it, it um, creates the conditions for the next flame to arise. Well, this happens mind moment by mind moment in our minds. And it's a lawful process. There's this conditioning effect. So there's not thing moving along, and yet there is this conditioning. And so when we uh, approach the question of rebirth or ask the question, who or what is reborn, moment by moment or lifetime to lifetime, we have to be careful that we don't solidify a process into a thing. We tend to attribute thingness to what is just a process. It's a conditioning process that happens moment by moment, and it just carries on. And so the um, quality of consciousness at the moment of death conditions the quality of consciousness in in the rebirth consciousness, if we want to look at it that way, whether we see that from one lifetime to the next or from one mind moment to the, to the next through the course of a lifetime. So our actions, what we choose to do in each moment in this life conditions uh, what happens in the future, whether it's in the next moment or in the next lifetime. So there's this continuity, but there's not a thing that is moving through that flow. And so wholesome, skillful actions tend to condition happy, pleasant results in the future. One time someone asked the uh, Tibetan teacher Chogyam Trungpa, what, what's reborn? And he said, your neuroses. <laughs> and uh, there's probably something pretty valid in that. <laughs> you know, we get, we get to keep working on it until we get it figured out. <laughs> I don't know, did you see the movie Groundhog Day? Maybe some of you did. Wakes up every morning and has to go through the same day again till he gets it right. <laughs> so we have to, as I was saying, be careful not to use this teaching to somehow account for our current conditions in our life in this fatalistic resigned way, as though we could use it to reflect the reasons why things are the way they are in the moment. And... Um, for example, to see if we have, uh, if we struggle with our health, to see that as somehow evidence of something we did in the past, some bad thing that we did, as though we're just getting um, what we deserve or that things are predetermined. Because it's a very dynamic process. It's not mechanistic, it's not closed, it's not fatalistic. There's nothing fixed or predetermined because it's constantly being informed. This is a quotation from uh, the Dalai Lama. Some people misunderstand the concept of karma. They take this Buddha's doctrine of law of causality to mean that all is predetermined, that there's nothing that an individual can do. This is a total misunderstanding. The very term karma 
or action is a term of active force, which indicates that future events are within your own hands. Since action is a phenomenon that is committed by a person, a living being, it is within your own hands to decide whether or not you engage in an action. So this points to um, the literal meaning of the word karma or kama means action. We tend to use it to mean the fruits of action. That's the common way. Kama vipaka is actually the, the fruit. But kama is action. It's, it's the doing of a thing in the, yeah, an action of body, speech, or mind. So it's an essential consideration here because all actions have their origin, their genesis in the mind. All actions are born in the mind. That's their genesis is there. And the Buddha spoke to this in uh, very um, directly in, this fam- in the famous quotation from the Dhammapada, mind is the forerunner of all things. They are all born there. They are all mind-made. If one speaks or acts with a wholesome, pure mind, happiness follows. If one speaks with an impure, unwholesome mind, unhappiness follows. I shortened that. The other night, uh, the other night, or sometime, I think it was the other night, Joseph also spoke about intention, a question about intention that came up. And um, linking, pointing to the connection between intention and the factors of motivation, motivation, the motivation behind intentions. This mental factor of intention, which arises, precedes any action of mind, body, speech, arising, constantly arising. The Pali word is chetana for that. It's this volitional energy that causes uh, action to occur. This is key to understanding kama. This, is, uh, this intentionality is uh, at the heart of it. And the Buddha stressed this. He said, intention, I tell you, is kama. Intending one does kama, one acts by way of body, speech, and mind. So this uh, factor that arises in the mind leads to all of our actions. And in and of itself, it's neutral karmically. It doesn't produce either wholesome or unwholesome uh, results. But then there are these other mental factors or qualities that uh, may arise and color this intention. And we can look at this in terms of motivation. So the intention to act might be colored by desire or greed, by love or generosity, by delusion, by wisdom that can be associated with the intention to do something. So then leading from this, we see that the the karmic weight, you could say the power of an action is not found so much within the action as within this intention and motivation, that combination. So we could think of a simple example of this. Someone might use uh, an ax or a crowbar to break open a door in a house. And it could be with the intention to rob the place, or it could be a a firefighter breaking it down to uh, try to get inside and rescue someone who's locked in in the house. The action looks the same, but the intention, the, the motivation 
that's, uh, that's impacting that intention to do that action is very different in those two cases. So as I was saying, intentions born of wholesome motivations tend to yield happy, beneficial results. Those born of unwholesome motivations, intentions colored by an unwholesome motive, tend to lead to suffering, difficulty, stress. This understanding is actually quite empowering, I think, for us because it leads us to see that we can choose what kinds of seeds. If we look at this with the image of a seed, we can choose what seeds we want to plant. That's, that's a, a choice we have. We can make that choice. We can plant the seeds of future happiness or the seeds of future suffering. And that's really uh, is up to us. And so this, that's, it's pretty simple to see this. This isn't really that complicated. And it may make sense to us when we think about it. But then do we put it into practice in our lives? That's where we need to look. You know, understanding doesn't go, only goes so far. There's a well-known uh, sutta in the middle-length discourses where the Buddha is uh, instructing his son Rahula. Now, I'd like to read a short excerpt from this uh, teaching. And the Buddha asks this question, what do you think, Rahula, what is a mirror for? And he answers, for reflection, sir. And the Buddha said, in the same way, Rahula, bodily actions, verbal actions, and mental actions are to be done with repeated reflection. Whenever you want to do a bodily action, you should reflect on it. This action I want to do, would it lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others, or to both? Would it be an unskillful action with painful consequences and painful results? If on reflection you know, you see, that it would be unskillful, an unskillful bodily action with painful consequences and painful results, then any bodily action of that sort is absolutely unfit for you to do. But if on reflection you know that it would not cause affliction, that it would be skillful with wholesome consequences and wholesome results, then it is fit for you to do. And he repeats this in terms of verbal actions and actions in the mind. And then he says, not only reflect before you do it, reflect while you're doing it, check it out then in case you missed something, and then reflect after you did it, three times. They're really careful, do things in threes a lot. Now that sounds like maybe a tall order, <laughs> but we can bring mindfulness and attention to our actions. Really look before we want to do it. What is the motive in the heart? What will this lead to? Will it lead to good things or harmful things? And then while we're doing it, check it out and see. Were we, did we miss something in there? Afterwards, we see, oh, well, it may have led to some harm that I just didn't see there. It wasn't the intention, but we can learn about it in that way. Another way that the Buddha spoke about this attention to our actions um, is in terms of what are called the ten unwholesome actions to be avoided or to be abandoned, not followed, not energies that we don't follow. So it's, it's a way that we bring mindfulness to our intentions, the motivations, the coloring our intentions, and see what we want to follow and what we want to not follow. 
which energies are leading in a good way. It's like seeing, it's like checking out the seeds. Do I want to plant this ragweed? Or do I want to plant something more beautiful? And so there are three of body, three actions of body, four of speech, and three of mind. And these relate quite directly to the precepts. But I'll I'll read them, just give a brief uh, summary of this teaching. So bodily actions to be avoided, intentionally killing living beings, the first of the precepts that we chanted tonight, Uh, avoid taking that which is not given, stealing, you could say, and avoid engaging in sexual misconduct, harming with sexual energy. Actions of speech, lying, harsh, or abusive speech, malicious speech, speech that is intended to cause division or undermine another, and useless speech, like idle chatter and gossip, backbiting kinds of speech. And actions of mind to be abandoned or avoided, not followed, are uh, covetousness, coveting another, what belongs to another, in all the ways we might uh, do that. Ill will, aversive mind states, and wrong view, not saying things as they are. It's kind of interesting that wrong view is one of those mental actions to be especially careful of, to be uh, checked out. You know, this subject of right view, wrong view, right view is spoken about in a lot of different ways. There's a lot of different uh, ways that that's held. One uh, key aspect of uh, what we could call wrong view and 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 the same in the same way, and thus right view, has to do with understanding the teachings and the law of karma. And this is, shows up all over the place in the teachings. Actions born of wrong view, if wrong view is present, they arise from a mistaken view of reality, a view that, in, un, that does not understand and see that actions have consequences, that they bear fruit. That's a wrong view, the mistaken uh, view that our actions do not have consequences. And it can lead to heedlessness with incredibly powerful consequences. You know, one heedless action could change the whole course of, of a life so quickly. And we can see this. I see, I see so much how one choice I might have made in my life would have gone in such a different direction when I reflect back on some of what I did as a younger person. It's very. It's not. It's not that far away in my case, at least. Have a very different kind of life. Conversely, wholesome, skillful actions to be done are are listed. There's a list of those things, and they're they're the non-doing of the of the unwholesome ones. So. Um, Refraining from killing, stealing, for example. We can think of this in terms of wholesome motivations, which are, we would then, wholesome energies that would arise that we would then choose to follow. So renunciation, letting go as opposed to covetousness, or um, kindness as opposed to uh, actions born of ill will, and so forth. So then if we look at this, then we have a clear sort of... um, um, set of guidelines for our actions, a, 
uh, a framework for our behavior that has the potential to lead to uh, what's called the bliss of blamelessness, the bliss of non-remorse, a mind that is free of the disturbance that's born of actions that uh, harmful actions, regret and remorse. Now it's said that that only a Buddha with the kind of vision that Buddhas are said to have can fully understand the workings of of karma within a single lifetime or over uh, the course of multiple lifetimes. But we can get a sense for how how karma unfolds in our life uh, in very direct ways. So I'll I'll offer a few examples that may, um, may be something we can relate to. So very commonly, for many people on retreat, there's an experience that happens where, um, and a lot of you have mentioned this, um, times when we'll be flooded by memories, kind of like someone called it a life review. Everything we've done kind of shows up. Sometimes there'll be memories we didn't even know were in there. And sometimes they can be really difficult to be with. I remember... um, in early, early days in my uh, meditation practice on retreats, I remembered, I was, as a little boy, I was really cruel to insects. Little boys are kind of bad sometimes. <laughs> They're worse than girls, I think. It was weird, because I was also very kind to, um, to creatures, and I was not afraid of them, and I was the kid that they would call to you know, catch the bug and put it outside, and I would do that. But I was also unbelievably cruel. I won't tell you the kinds of horrible things I did, but um, these memories came up of these beings who suffered at my hands, and it just was really, really hard to, to see this and think of, you know, it wasn't just a few, it was a lot. <laughs> it's horrible. So strong feelings that can arise in regards to past actions. These days I have the reputation of being the favorite food of biting insects. And I I won't say there's a direct relationship here, but sometimes I do reflect on it. You know, if you're taking a walk with me in mosquito season, you'll probably be safe because they will go for me. And I'm the only person I know who has been bitten by a ladybug. really hard, like a painful bite from a ladybug. <laughs> you know, we think of them as such kind, benign things, but they, they've bitten me. <laughs> but at other times we may have memories of, of past skillful actions that we've done, things that we can look back and, you know, actions of generosity or kindness. And when these come into the mind, then the mind state will be really bright and happy, uh, pleasant feelings arising from that. So we see how um, this karma is operating in that our actions and the results of them impact our mind states in meditation. And we can be uh, caught up in terrible uh, remorse and, and worry, and, or we can be, uh, have a bright, happy mind, depending on these actions. So with mindfulness, then, we can uh, look at our actions, look at the motivations that color the intention to do something that arises in the mind. We see that this, how this 
um, unfolds lawfully, what happens in this. But it's not always so easy to see this because it happens so quickly a lot of the time. And our motivations may not be clear and often they're quite mixed. I think Joseph spoke to this as well. So for example, let's say we're here um, sitting late. We've stayed on sitting after the chanting is done and you know people start to drift out and we, we're sitting late. And there can be, um, we start to feel tiredness, unpleasant feelings of tiredness arising in the body. And the, the intention to uh, get up and leave and go to bed arises. This motivation to uh, go. Uh, and there may be wisdom there because it's late and we've been working really hard and it's time for bed and time to rest the body and the mind. But then we also may have um, the intention to keep sitting for a while longer because we want to uh, push the edge a little bit and see, you know, not just leave at the first sign of fatigue. And there might be some wisdom there. Yeah, it's good to stretch a little bit. But then there might be also a subtle desire to look good. I want to be the last one out. I want everyone to see I'm still sitting here. So I'll be seen as a really good yogi. You know, so it can be really mixed. These things can come and go so quickly at times. Or maybe we're motivated to make an offering to practice generosity. And there may be this pure um, desire just to make an offering, make a gift, and to practice this beautiful, uh, cultivate this beautiful quality. But then there could also be, again, a desire to be seen as generous or to, um, you know, maybe we'll get something in return if we give. Or we feel like, well, something I'm supposed to do if I'm a good Buddhist. Or maybe there's some guilty feeling there, subtle, and we hope that it'll go away if we make an offering. So again, it can be quite mixed. Another way we might get a sense for uh, how karma unfolds in a kind of um, present moment way within uh, within a day, within our lives, is noticing how our mental state, what's present in our in our mind and heart, affects the way the response we get uh, from others that we encounter, that we meet. So, if we have a lot of anger, fear, envy in our mind, if that's there, we'll get one kind of response from people that we meet. And if there's uh, love, generosity, care, if those are present, there'll be a very different response usually. We can see it in terms of uh, development of, of what we might call our personality. What, what are we, what's a personality? I tend to think there's, we have, I have, oh, I have a personality, like a thing thing that we have. But if we look, we can see there may be habitual kinds of mind states that tend to arise a lot. There may be um, predictable patterns of behavior that we'll see maybe in ourselves, maybe in another. And we tend to see this as, as sort of fixed. It's just the way I am. It's just the way this person is. That's just their personality, as though somehow it's, it's fixed in just the way it is. So we came in that way. And there may be certain tendencies that we can see, but it's not fixed. And what actually is happening here is that repeated actions 
tend to condition the tendency to do those actions in the future. It's more likely. So you could say we're conditioning this tendency that we're practicing when we act a certain way. We're practicing. If we act out of kindness, out of generosity, we're practicing that. We're cultivating that. And um, that's what will, it will have a powerful effect for good or for not good, for ill. When we act out of anger, fear, confusion, we condition that tendency. And so we can see what we call personality as this, in terms of this conditioning in the mind and the heart. And so then this points to the fact that we can, we can intentionally cultivate what's wholesome. We can incline the mind and heart towards that. We can practice refraining from the unwholesome. And this impacts uh, this whole system. So karma then functions as this science of happiness, this recipe for happiness, in that we're given great responsibility, personal responsibility for our lives. And we see, if we understand it, that our lives unfold in a way that reflects the choices that we make. So in a way, you could say we create our own destiny. And of course, it's not a fixed thing. We can't say, if I do this, I'm going to get this result. It's too complicated. The Buddha recommended that one frequently frequently reflect on uh, kama, on the law of karma. And the traditional phrase that's used in the equanimity practice in cultivating this quality of mind is the same uh, reflection. I am the owner of my actions, the owner of my kama, heir to my actions, born of my actions, related through my actions, and live dependent on my actions. Whatever I do for good or for ill, to that I will fall heir. Thich Nhat Hanh put it this way quite simply, my actions are my only true belongings. I cannot escape the consequences of my actions. My actions are the very ground upon which I stand. So kama is said to be one's true property. It's often expressed in this way. Kama is our true property. And so in this understanding then, we begin with our internal world and the motivations that arise there in terms of the actions we might choose to do. So we start there, we bring mindfulness to that. And this in turn then conditions uh, the course of our life. And so reflections like these two that I just read, I think actually are quite empowering for us because they can turn us towards um, choices that will lead to happiness, to freedom, to peace in the mind and heart. They point to the way that we can steer our lives in that direction. And with mindfulness, as I've been saying, we uncover motivations which often may be unseen. We see what's going on. And, you know, we might not like what we see some of the time. Sometimes greed, hatred, or delusion, these root causes of suffering, the root kilesas of mind, sometimes those have the upper hand. Sometimes they're running the show. They're driving the bus. I just like to look at this. What's running the show right now? I can look in my mind and heart and see 
what's running the show here? So it's not personal. It's like, oh, greed is driving the bus. And if we see that, there's the possibility that we can, um, you know, substitute a different driver there, <laughs> put a different driver in to put on the brakes and pause so we don't run into something. But we can make a choice. Sometimes wisdom, love, generosity are running the show. Sometimes that's what's in charge there in the mind and heart. We can look and see. And so mindfulness here is completely changes things. It's a complete game changer because it opens up the possibility that we're not just running on automatic. We're not just acting out our conditioning. We can see what's going on and we can choose what motivations, what energies we want to follow when we see them. So even though it might not be good news sometimes to see, at least then we have the possibility to, to make some choices there. So I want to stress once more that it's a mistake to relate to these teachings as though it points to something that is fixed or predetermined and that everything that happens now in our lives is just the result of past actions. And to really caution that we don't oversimplify this process because as I was saying, it's not a one-to-one ratio. I don't get bitten by bugs a lot just because of how mean I was to bugs when I was young. And it doesn't mean that if we're really careful that nothing bad will happen. We can't reduce things to that level of simplicity. It's, it's more complex. Um, it's too complex. I think it's one of the, the imponderables that will cause one's head to explode if we think about it too much back there in the corner. <laughs> the exploding head syndrome. And there are all these factors that fall outside the uh, realm of what, um, uh, of karmic unfolding. There are um, illness and the effects of food and uh, nutrition and weather and climate and certain accidents and things f- are said to fall outside of this karmic unfolding. So it's not all reduced to that. So the fruits of actions, comma, the action we take, that's one factor that, uh, that works into the system. But it's not closed, it's dynamic. And anything we choose to do impacts the whole unfolding of this process. It's directly influenced by our actions moment by moment by moment. It's like if we go back to the image of the seed, then all kinds of factors come into play when we plant a seed. It's not just the planting of it, but and the growth of, of what flowers from that seed. You know, there's the weather, where it was planted, what the conditions of the soil are, what the weather was like at that time, uh, whether it was cared for, fertilized, or watered, or all these things, if it rained or didn't rain. And this holds true in our own lives as well. There's all these different factors. And how we are in the present, how we choose to live now, powerfully uh, impacts how, how this process unfolds. The, the uh, fruits of past actions, it's all influenced. And goodness in the present tends to draw goodness from past wholesome actions out, bring it to fruition. So it's a very dynamic process. 
And so past unskillful actions that we may be aware of and may come into the mind and heart, we need to bear in mind that that they are directly impacted and conditioned by uh, wholesome actions in the present. Goodness and wholesome actions uh, directly un- impact. It's all like we, we uh, wrap our past unskillfulness with skillfulness in the, f- in the present and it impacts how it all unfolds. I like to tell the story of um, famous story most of you may have heard, but some of you might not have, of uh, Angulimala, this bad dude who was around at the time of the Buddha, who, well, he wasn't bad. His given name was Ahimsa, which means harmless, non-harming. But he had a, I don't know if I'm telling the story, Damaruan will maybe correct me. Um, but he, he was misled by a teacher who was jealous of his goodness and was convinced that he had to uh, kill a thousand people as part of his, his path. And he, he did this, he embarked on this, and he, his name, Anguli Mala, a mala is like a string of a garland or a string of beads, and Anguli, it was a f- string of fingers, he cut a finger off and wore it, a garland. And it's said that um, he, was, he was living in a, in a wild forested area somewhere near where the Buddha was at one time, and um, people said, don't go there. Angulimala's hanging out and he's a bad dude and he's going to get you. And the Buddha said, it'll be okay. And so he, it said that the Buddha walked through this area and Angulimala, I think he was going to be the last one, the last victim. And, and it said that as far as, as fast as he ran to try to catch the Buddha, even though the Buddha was lifting, moving, placing. <laughs> Probably not lifting, moving, placing, but he was not running. He was going slow. I like to think, mindfully walking. He couldn't catch him. And he yelled, stop, stop. And the Buddha said, I have stopped. You need to stop. And this had a profound effect on Angulimala's mind in the moment as meetings with the Buddha tended to do. And he, he uh, transformed him. And he asked if he could become a disciple. And um, he became fully awakened being. It's said that whenever he went on alms round, people threw rotten food at him and he had uh, insults and uh, he had a rough time in that way. And it's an interesting, um, it's interesting. There's, I've, at, in the evening we, we do the metta chanting, the metta sutta chanting for those of you who come. And it's one of this group of what are called paritta chants. These are blessing protections. And I mentioned there are many different ones. And there's an Angulimala Paritta, a chant about Angulimala that's a protection. Just interesting. You wouldn't think, you know, this guy, why would anything to do with him be a protection? But his, the chant that's based on, his, on Angulimala, this Angulimala Paritta, is um, used to ease women in labor, in childbirth. And the story is that he was very kind-hearted when he gave up his, his bad habits of chopping people. And um, he was on alms round and he heard a young woman who was uh, having a very difficult labor, really um, in a lot of pain, really struggling in childbirth. And he was very moved and he went back to the Buddha and said, 
uh, is there something that we can do shortening this story? And the Buddha said, go back and tell them that you've never harmed a living being. And he said, I can't do that. I'm a, I was a, I've been a serial killer, Bonte, in case you didn't remember. And, um, and the Buddha said, okay, go back and tell them that since you uh, entered the holy life, since you became uh, a disciple and took the robes, that you have never harmed, intentionally harmed a living being. And he said, I can say that. That is true. And it said that he went back and said, sister, since I entered the holy life, I have never intentionally harmed a living being by the power of this truth. May you be eased. And it worked. So it's still used. It's still chanted. There's some beautiful versions of it that you are not allowed to search for now, but some other time you can find them. So it's still used this way, this reflection. So we see how it's not fixed. A story like this can illustrate this. And so a real connection to this, this teaching, this understanding can really, um, I think, no matter how we hold it, whether we see it in terms of just one life, whether somehow the idea of unfolding over um, many lifetimes, however we might hold that, it, it really can um, have a profound effect on how we look at things and how we look at um, the choices that we make in our lives. This is, uh, these are some words from Sayada Upandita. Our concepts of ownership and control over material objects are basically illusory, for all matter is impermanent and subject to decay. Karma is our only reliable possession in the world. Karma has an immediate effect upon the mind, causing joy or misery depending on whether it is wholesome or unwholesome. It also has long-term consequences. Seeing in this way gives us the power to choose the conditions under which we wish to live. Thus the view of kama as our true reliable property is called the light of the world. For by it we can see and evaluate the nature of our choices. Right understanding of kama is like a railroad junction where the train can choose its direction. So in other words, the power of the mind is, is really vast. The power of intention, the power of motivations in the mind and heart are very power, very vast. And they have far-reaching consequences in how our lives unfold. And, and we really can choose the direction we want the train to go. We can choose the seeds that we want to plant, planting the seeds of future happiness. The Dalai Lama said, very simply, happiness is not ready-made. It comes from your own actions. So we'll just keep sitting quietly for another minute or so.
So thank you for your kind attention. I know you're a captive audience, but I still appreciate it. And, uh, some time for walking and uh, some chanting at 9 p.m. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.